There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I can hear me. How's that? Better? Okay. From the pastor who brought you BigButtsOfTheBible.com, I found another website for your perusal. You should have been there last week. It is called RevengeUnlimited.com. This is what it says on its homepage. Have you been wronged, mistreated, annoyed, or ignored? Is someone tormenting you beyond what you can bear? Are you ready for some payback? Do you feel that a good prank is an art form? Explore our site and find piles of good ideas and novelties. The Revenge Unlimited message board is now up and working. Go to the Avengers Den to ask and give advice of fellow revenge artists. Revenge Unlimited believes that there are people in desperate need of a good dose of humility. We recommend good-natured pranks and non-aggressive expressions of distaste. It's therapeutic and better than serving time for assault. <laughs> revenge Unlimited does not support or recommend acts of violence, permanent harm, or violation of the law. We do not guarantee anything you do will bring about the effect you want, and we will not be responsible for any actions by persons who visit this site. If you are a victim of a Revenge Unlimited prank, welcome. Remember, payback is a... I'll let you fill in that blank, but just for the sake of church, we'll say that it's not good. It ends by reminding you that by entering this site, you agree that you take full responsibility for your actions. I think it's safe to say that everyone in here has wanted to exact some type of revenge at some point in our lives. I heard about a maid who'd worked many years for a very wealthy family but was paid poorly and treated even worse. And if that wasn't bad enough, she was eventually fired for no good reason. Her bonus for her many years of service was two $10 bills. To their surprise, as she was leaving, she took one of the $10 bills and threw them to their dog, Lucy. The woman asked the maid, what was that for? Well, the maid said, I can't forget my helper. Lucy has a great tongue, and she helped me do your dishes all these years. <laughs> now, see, that's revenge, and there's something in us that likes that just a little bit too much. Most of our culture today doesn't recognize it as revenge, though. It's called my rights, or more educated moments, we may call it justified retaliation. We feel that we got a moral obligation to rectify this situation, and that's the American way. But whatever we call it, God calls it revenge. And his feelings towards personal vengeance are anything but ambivalent. The truth is that we as a society often think about revenge. 
And sometimes bumper stickers display what our real philosophy in life is all about. There are such bumper stickers as, Do unto others before they can do unto you. I don't get mad, I get even. Keep honking, I'm reloading. Caution, I break for tailgaters. To err is human, to forgive is out of the question. And finally, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I just want to be about the Lord's work. These are the people that we share the road with. I wonder where road rage comes from. So how do we deal with those times when we know that we need to bury the hatchet, but we want to bury it in the back of someone's head instead of the ground? Let's see what the Bible teaches. Verse 1, please. Now it happened when Saul returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. If you remember the last time we were together... Saul had quit chasing David because of having to deal with a Philistine threat. But look what Saul does the moment the Philistines are no longer a problem. He goes right back to hunting David. And Saul isn't playing around. It says he took 3,000 chosen men. Saul is picking the men that would be our Navy SEALs and Green Berets today. Now we are told that David has about 600 men with him at this time. That gives Saul a 5-to-1 numerical advantage, not to mention that he had the chosen men out of all of Israel, while David had the downtrodden and the oppressed. He had hardly chosen these men. Let's be honest, who would have? Now, a marvelous comparison can be made here between David and David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, during his period of rejection, which lasted about 10 years. Now, this time in David's life compares to this present state of our Lord. You see, right now we are currently living in the days of his rejection. The world has rejected Christ just as David had been rejected. We're going to see that David's journey to the throne to the nation of Israel was incredibly long and terribly difficult. And doesn't it make you wonder why? Why? After all, God has rejected Saul and has chosen David. And it's clear from very much of the account of 1 Samuel that God was, as always, sovereign over all of these events. Now, this is an aspect of a wider question that thoughtful people often ponder. If the ultimate purpose for God in his creation is the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no suffering and no more tears, why is the journey to that kingdom so long and so difficult? Why are there so many tears on the way? The same question could have been asked of Jesus. Indeed, it was asked of him. If you are the Son of God, the tempter said, and then he proceeded to suggest ways of coming into his kingdom quickly and without pain. Now, Jesus rejected that temptation, and he set out on the long and difficult journey that would take him into Jerusalem and to the cross. But why? I think an important insight in these questions came on the day described in this chapter that we are looking at today. 
It was a day on which David could have very easily made his pathway to the throne quick and easy. And if we can understand this morning why he chose not to do that, we will learn something very important about the way that God is bringing in his kingdom the way that he is. And not only that, we can learn how God is bringing us into the kingdom in the way that he is. I think trials are given to us for four main reasons. I would write this down if you're taking notes. Trials are sent to direct, inspect, correct, and perfect. Allow me to unpack that. Trials are sent to direct us. Sometimes we can just get off in our spiritual journey, and so the Lord will send a trial to get us back on track. Now, sometimes trials are sent to inspect us. It's easy to live the Christian life when our bank account is full and our health is great, but how do we react when the dark clouds roll in and the heavens all seem like brass? It's only during those times of self-inspection that we truly will find out what our true spiritual maturity is like. Thirdly, trials are sent to correct us. This kind of goes hand in hand with the trials that direct us, but with one exception. Sometimes we just get off track through no fault of our own. Then God may send a trial to direct us. I mean, we're trying to live right, but we just make an innocent mistake. And those are the times that God will lovingly direct us into the right path. But sometimes, in full rebellion, we decide we're going to sin and we don't care what God thinks about it. Those are the times the Lord may send a correcting trial into our lives. And even then, it's done out of love to draw us back to the place that he wants us to be in. But be warned, we're not going to like it. And so it's always best to always just obey the Lord. And finally, trials are sent to perfect us. This is always the end goal of any trial. The Lord wants what is best for each of us. And so any trial that he sends is sent to make us more like his son, which is what we should all want as followers of the Nazarene. But back to our story. Of all the caves in the Engedi region, and there are many, Saul chose to come into this one, alone and vulnerable. Now, the Bible is not just a book about high, lofty theological ideas. The Bible also deals with real life. And so it very plainly and very simply tells us the reason why Saul went into that cave. Now prepare yourself. The story gets a little graphic here. But God tells it like it is, and so I will too. Saul and his men arrive at some sheep pens near a cave, and Saul has to stop. Why? In verse 3, the King James says he has to cover his feet. The New King James says he has to attend to his needs. That's a polite way of saying the king had to go to the bathroom. And since porta-potties hadn't been invented yet, a cave was as good a place as any. And so as Saul enters the cave and takes off his robe to do his business, we find out that David and his men are already in the cave, keeping just out of sight in the darkness. And as David and his men are pressed back against the cave walls, they quietly discuss the meaning of this remarkable occurrence. Now, some of you have been camping. You know how vulnerable Saul is at this point. Saul is totally defenseless. He is easy prey for David right now. This is just one more reason why Pastor Bill doesn't go camping. 
If I want to get close to nature, that's why God made the Discovery Channel. Have you ever heard that old saying that he got caught with his pants down? This is where it comes from. Not really. I don't know why I say stuff like that. Verse 4. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. When they saw Saul and realized he didn't see them, their human natures went into overdrive. And they encouraged David at this point to take revenge, saying it must be God's timing. They're like, praise the Lord and cut his throat. But there's only one problem. God didn't say that. Now, all the Lord said no such thing. The sentiments of the men were understandable. You see, in the previous chapter, the Lord did say to David, I will give the Philistines into your hand, which is pretty close to I will give your enemy into your hand. From the point of view of David's men, at this point, there was not a lot of difference between Saul and the Philistine army. Now, this is why we must be very careful about who we allow to speak into our lives. You'll find people will say, well, God must be opening that door, so you better go through it, or the Lord must be providing this opportunity for you. And God gets blamed for a lot of things that he has absolutely nothing to do with. Now, here's an important principle to remember during those times. No door will ever open from God if it goes against his revealed will in the Bible. Now, the danger here is we can make the mistake by doing the same thing, by making Scripture say what we want it to say. It's like that old poem, Wonderful things in the Bible I see, things that were put there by you and by me. But there's something else I want us to see here. I think one of, the le- one of the lessons that we can learn here is a very practical one. And it's this. We have to be very, very careful when we are going through long trials like the one described here for David. Especially if that trial is unjust and unfair. And then out of nowhere there comes a chance to finally put an end to it. In those times we really have to be extra diligent and the counsel that we receive from people. And get this, especially counsel from those people who love us the very most. Because like David's army here, all they can see is that you are suffering, and because of their love for you, they will try to save you from that suffering. The problem with that is, sometimes, for the purposes that only God may know, We're not supposed to be saved from the trial, but we're supposed to go through the trial. That sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? Listen to the Phillips translation of James 1-2. He writes, When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but embrace them as long-lost friends. Realize they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. What am I saying? Simply this. Let us all be very careful that when the trials and temptations do come, and they will come, that we are very careful about what we do and who we listen to. And we remember that no matter what the trial is, even in that trial, the Lord is working for our perfection. 
Sometimes to be pure, you have to walk through the fire. Now, David's advisors thought this was a God-given opportunity for him to lop off Saul's head. David, however, knew otherwise. Isaiah 28, 16 reminds us, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not act hastily. One of the hardest lessons for me as a Christian is to wait and to slow down, especially in times of trials. Now, David thought, David's men thought that this opportunity to kill Saul was God's blessing, when in reality it was not his blessing, but it was God's testing. And who would have blamed David if he would have taken his sword and plunged it into the back of Saul after all Saul had done to him, and the way that Saul had destroyed David's life because of his own jealousy? So David drew his sword, but he doesn't plunge it into the back of Saul. Instead, he slices off a portion of Saul's robe. He then returns to his place and back in the cave. Now, we're not told what went through David's mind when he, went, when he did this. Now, was he caught up in the excitement of the men and only at the last second restrained himself from doing something more drastic? Or did he know all along that he would not lay a hand on the king? You see, there was more to this than just a damaged garment. Whatever was going through David's mind before he cut off the robe, it is certain that he immediately saw the great significance in what he had done. It was like that day back in Gilgal, back in chapter 15, when the robe was torn between Samuel and Saul. Now, that action was given massive symbolic significance by Samuel. He said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And that's speaking of David. Now, years later in the cave of Engedi, that neighbor took it upon himself to slice off Saul's royal robe. David's men saw this as an opportunity for revenge, while David saw it as an opportunity to extend mercy and to prove that his heart was truly right. So David stealthily crept up to the garment that Saul laid aside, cut off to a corner of the robe, and then went back into the cave. Saul left that cave not realizing how close he had came to death. Now, God has a great purpose and a great destiny for David, but at this point he was being put through the crucible of testing to determine his fitness for what God had planned for him. Therefore, in a very real sense, we are studying the story of each of us as Christians. Look at verse 5 with me. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Philip Keller in his book, David, has a chapter entitled, The Ruined Robe. And he says, quote, Even though he resisted the temptation to sever Saul's head, he still cannot resist this small taste of revenge. For to cut off a piece from the royal robe was an act of utter contempt for the one who wore it. This was an expression of the utmost disdain and disrespect. Though he had not murdered the tyrant in cold blood, he had in fact shown that he murdered him in his heart. He knew what he had done was done initially out of anger and bitterness, and afterward he was disturbed within himself for allowing his anger and bitterness to gain control over him, even for a moment. David had such a desire to honor God with his life that he felt remorse because he allowed sin to lead him to do something he knew was not right no matter what everyone else thought and said. 
Now, to me, I look at that, and I think that Saul got off extremely lucky. I would be tempted to think, you know, he threw spears at me. He's chasing me from cave to cave like an animal. He's lucky the only thing I did was cut off his robe. It's so easy to drift into the flesh, isn't it? What I don't want us to miss is the extremely tender conscience that David has right here. I think the King James says that David's heart smote him. That's what we should all want. We should all desire that immediately following any sin, that our hearts would smite us in conviction. David's heart was tender enough to know that he might not have done all the wrong that he could have done, but he had done something wrong nonetheless. Now, slaying an enemy or an attacker on the battlefield is one thing, but attacking a defenseless king is quite something else. David then reminds his men that Saul is the anointed of the Lord and that nobody had the right to attack him. Now, this teaches us a very important lesson this morning. David is sensitive in his conscience towards even the little things. Now, listen to me. If we are sensitive to the little things, we will be sensitive to the big things. But if we are desensitized to the little things and the little sins, we will also be desensitized to bigger things and bigger sins. Example, it is possible that if you have no problem taking paper clips from your company, later you'll take ink pens and then a stapler until one day you're walking out the door with a laser printer. You'll justify it by thinking they have 18 laser printers. No one needs that many printers. But sin is like that, you see. It is never satisfied. Now, here we see that David's feelings of revenge don't last very long. And as we make our way through the life of David, we'll see him make choices. Some are great choices, like today's. And some are awful choices, like his choice with Bathsheba. But you know what? The choices that we make in life define who we are. Columbia researcher Sheena Ayinga has found out that the average person makes about 70 conscious decisions every day. That's 25,550 decisions a year. Over a 70-year lifespan, that's 1,788,500 individual little decisions. And basically, life is a sum of all of our choices. So when we put those 1,788,500 choices together, that's who we are as a person. Now, this morning we see that David was going to refuse to get even with Saul. And by the way, Anytime you feel the need to get even with someone, all you are doing is lowering yourself down to their level. When we do that, we may finally be even with them, but now all that means is we're both in the gutter now. Romans 12:17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. What about the person at work who manipulates situations to make himself look good at your expense, or the family member who says some really hurtful and untrue things about you, 
or the supposed friend who borrowed money from you and you've never seen a dime of it back, or the spouse that walked out on you, leaving you with all the kids, or the parent who verbally, emotionally, or sexually abused you. What do we do during those times? Now, is it easy not to repay evil for evil during those times? Absolutely not. Now, no biblically literate person will argue that this, in this circumstance, the best thing to do is to forgive and not seek revenge. It is the right course to take. But if anyone tells you that that's an easy thing to do, just smile. And know for certain they are either very naive or they're woefully lacking in life experience. And they just don't know what they're talking about. Because it is a very difficult thing to do. But if we want to judge our Christianity, it's not how loud we sing, how big we smile, or how many potato casseroles we can eat. It's how do we react when we are treated in an unfair manner. For it is then, and only then, that our Christian character is truly revealed. Verse 6, please. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. David had a tremendous respect for the office of the king, even if he didn't have any respect for the king himself. No matter how low Saul stooped, he was still the king and should be respected. To cut off the corner of his robe was a blatant act of disrespect to the king of Israel. Now, those of you who have been in the military know that when you salute a man, you're saluting the rank and not necessarily the man. The man could be an absolute jerk, but you still saluted and respected the rank that that man or woman held. Now, think about David's situation, though. Saul is demon-possessed. God has already rejected him as the king, and he has just not yet been removed from the office. And the way Saul was treating David was totally uncalled for and completely unjust. There was little in Saul, if anything, for David to respect. He was not a man of integrity. He was not a man of his word. He was a selfish, backstabbing, controlling king. But that's not what David was submitting to. What what was David submitting to? He was submitting to the God-ordained office of the king of Israel. Now, in the book of Acts, we're told the time that Paul stood before the Sanhedrin, and Ananias the priest ordered that Paul be slapped because Paul said he had fulfilled his duty to God up until this day. Now, in anger, Paul shouted out to the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law commanding that I be struck. Now, notice what Paul said was completely true. It was a violation of the law to command someone to be struck before the Sanhedrin. But then we are told, those who were standing near Paul said, You dare to insult God's high priest? Many people believe Paul's eyesight was so bad at that time, he couldn't see who it was. And Paul was aghast at hearing this. He replied, Brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler 
of your people. As Christians, we are commanded to respect those in authority, even if we don't like them. Let's close with an application. What's being said here about the anointing, I think, is incredible. You see, it just wasn't kings or judges who were anointed with oil, nor was it only prophets and priests. The altar and the instruments of the tabernacle were also anointed with oil. In other words, David recognized that anointing doesn't necessarily have to mean deserving. That is why he could say, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have touched the Lord's anointed. For Saul is the anointed instrument of God to stretch me and to change me and to make me the man and the king that I'm one day supposed to be. The same is true with us. Lord, change me, I pray. I'm tired of the smallness of my soul and the hardness of my heart. Make me different and more like you. Okay, the Lord says, I'll send you an anointed instrument to help accomplish that change. Great, I say, thinking it will be an anointed teacher, a Christian book, or a close friend. But instead, he sends a saw or two chucking spears at me. I ask you this morning, who has the Lord allowed to be in your life who throws spears at you and who brings grief to your life? That person may be the anointed instrument of God to work in you the love, the kindness, and the tenderness that you are praying and longing for. There may be no other way for the Lord to change us but to send a saw or two our way. The only question remaining is, what are we going to do? And Father, that is the question that's left hanging in the air. What are we going to do? We want to be like you, we say. And yet we know, Lord, that very often it is trials and temptations and tribulation and things like that, Father, that you send our way to mold us and to make us. Lord, I realize there are probably people here that don't even want to even pray a prayer like that. And for those, Lord, I pray that you would make them want to want it, Lord, because it is also the very best way to live, a life full of purpose. And we can look back, Lord, and have a, a life that made a difference in this world. Make us mature people of faith, Lord. We ask in Christ's name, amen.